Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Krause. I co-founded EventRight with Stephen Key 21 years ago and have been coaching and mentoring inventors to license their products to big companies ever since. We've had students in over 65 countries. What we specialize in is licensing. So when you license your product, it's their money, it's their workforce, and it's their existing distribution. So you don't need to raise money. You don't need to go on Shark Tank. You don't, you just, you get everything in one place. This big company has distribution in stores that you already want to be in. They have unlimited money and lines of credit for a product that sells well, so they won't run out of money. And they have maybe have 30, 50, 80, 100 products. So you're going to plug your product and when you license your product to them or rent your idea to them. And it's going to be one of many products in their product line. So they've got this machine that is moving forward, getting products in stores, not just getting in stores, but keeping in stores. And then when you license to them, you kind of are them. You're with them, right? And so if they're in 30,000 stores, boom, you're in 30,000 stores. You know, they're going to try to get into the stores they want to get into. Um, so that's what licensing is. We don't guide or coach people to start their own business, manufacture and sell their own products. We've had plenty of people come on board with us and become students of ours that have done that. Maybe they're doing it now. Maybe they're tremendously successful. They're like, oh, I know a big company could do way better than I could. Maybe they're moderately successful and some people aren't very successful at all, but then they license it to a big company and they're doing much better. So, but we don't coach and mentor people to, to venture and sell the products themselves. We coach them to rent the idea, which is what licensing is to a big company and receive royalties for every unit they sell. If you guys could type in yes, that you can hear me, that would be great um, so that I can just confirm I'm not talking out in the ozone because occasionally the mic doesn't work. So I'm going to wait for somebody to type yes before I say anything else. So if a bunch of you could type in yes, you can hear me. That'd be great. There we go. Thank you, William. Thank you, Tanya, Michael, Hamill, Art, Corian, Melissa, and whoever else types. Thank you. Okay, good. So um, I don't know. It looks like it's the audience is a little bit thinner than it normally is, quite a bit. Um, but maybe people will join later. That's quite often the case. We have enough questions. I'll go the full hour. Um, and I'm just going to been talking nonstop all day long, so I'm going to take a little sip of water. Looks like the first question is a long one, um, and it's from Anari. Hello, InventRight. So I'll just read the whole thing. We'll see if we can figure it out. Obviously, more general questions are good for these chats because then it benefits everybody else if it's so specific. But usually I can figure out how to make it general so everybody benefits. Hello, InventRight. I'm looking for your advice. Story goes like that. I have, and I'm going to read it just the way they wrote it. I have an idea, and I hired a mechanical engineer to help me bring my vision to life. Okay. Um, but now I'm facing problems. I don't have an engineering background, and therefore it is very difficult for me to write a proper provisional patent application that would cover all the workarounds. Well, I don't think you need to be an engineer to do that, but if it gets really complicated, maybe. Should I hire another engineer to discuss other options that are possible for workarounds, or there are some other options, or are there other options? I'm sure if someone could direct me to the right direction, that it, that it would be you guys. Thank you. So thank you, Inari. Um, so I find the vast majority of our students 
don't need to reach out to an engineer to help them figure things out, that it's fairly obvious. Let me get up here. There we go. I realized my chair is too low. Um, a lot of times you can look at similar things and make assumptions. And so Anari is worried like, okay, I paid this engineer. They did some engineering for me, but I heard, it sounds probably from us, Anari, that you want to cover the variations, workarounds, improvements. Um, now, sometimes products are complicated. Like it's, it might be a highly technical, complex product, but the inventor's invention is just this hinge on the side or it's just this or that. So you don't always have to understand how everything works on a complicated product to invent in that area. If, if your invention, you know, you just kind of tell them, well, you're going to do whatever you do normally, but for my piece of it, you're going to change this or change that, right? So you can, you can do that. So my question to you, Inari, and we're not going to answer it here, but could you make assumptions on the other variations? I don't think normally it takes an engineer to understand the other ways that it could be done. Sometimes it does, but the vast majority of time it does not. So you want to include the variations that, you know, might be like 70, 80% is good, but half as good doesn't make sense. So um, to hire another engineer just to figure out what all those variations and basically invent for you, spending a lot of money on engineers and they're very expensive. Most of our students don't, need to do that. Of course, I, I can't know without knowing what your specific product is. So it's kind of getting into an area that I can't really answer. That's more of a one-on-one -on -one sort of thing. Um, but, you know, if you, if you file a patent or a provisional, and there's 10 other ways of doing this thing that are just as good as your way, and you don't cover it, well, then your patent's worthless, right? But you don't want to get to the point where you're paranoid about it, but you do want to cover those other versions. So that's something that we always give, give advice on. Um, Melissa said, if I own a patent, can I just email my sell sheet over after talking to someone who provides me an email address in the company? So everything that we share today is not, I, I was delay before I give the disclaimer, is not to be considered legal advice. This is just, we're talking about different issues as general business advice. Please seek the services of an attorney before you act on anything. Okay, that's just our little disclaimer here. So Melissa asks, if you own a patent, can I just email my sell sheet over after talking to someone who provides me an email address in the company? That's what our students do. You know, they file, you have, you're saying you have a patent. Most of our students just have a provisional patent and that's fine. They can't see what you're protecting or not protecting. You're creating a paper trail when you email them. These are all things that protect you. Um, another thing that protects you that people don't normally think about is being professional, basically not being a whacked out inventor. So a company, uh, three or 4% of companies, that's not a statistic, that's my feeling, that only about three or 4% of companies in most industries would even consider knocking you off. Um, they don't want to do that when you see what they see, you know what you're talking about because they now know it's a liability that you don't act completely clueless. But for that three or 4% that might consider knocking you off, if you're acting like a wacky inventor, they see you have no idea what you're talking about. You're asking for crazy things. You're saying crazy things. Your marketing's terrible, but they see that the product makes sense. They might knock you off. So it's a weird thing to say. And Steve and I are the only people that I've ever seen say it. I think I was the first person that started saying this is conducting yourself professionally is the best form of protection. It is stronger than a, a patent in a lot of cases because um, they just don't want to mess with you. Um, so 
you know, yeah, Melissa, uh, if you have a patent, send it over. You're creating a paper trail. Now, some attorneys will tell you, oh, you should ask every company you send to uh, your, you want to send your product to to sign an NDA before you even tell them what it is. Sign a non-disclosure agreement. It's not practical. I'm not telling you not to do that because I'm not going to offer you legal advice because I'm not going to do that. But it's not practical. If you ask every company in most industries to sign your NDA, you're never going to get to show it to them. But if you ask them to sign an NDA after, oh, well, I'm going to send my prototype. I'm going to disclose the inner workings of it. A lot of times you send your sell sheet. It's just obvious how it's done. But other times they could see the benefit, but they don't quite know how it works behind the scenes. And in that case, that's an additional form of protection. But don't hold back on what you send them so they're confused as to what the what it is and what the marketing is of it and the benefit of it is um, because you're worried that they might steal it because you're just shooting yourself in the foot there because then they're not going to show interest. Nobody's interested. And then you won't end up licensing the thing. You need to give them the marketing piece so they understand what the product is. Okay. You have to do that. And, but a lot of times, you know, it might seem kind of backwards, but our students will, they won't send the NDA. They'll follow the provisional. They're creating the paper trail with the email. And I haven't had one of our students get knocked off in the 21 years we've been doing this to a company they presented to. Um, it will happen one day, but it hasn't happened to the best of my knowledge um, yet. So that's the norm. Most inventors rip themselves out of their own fears, rip themselves off out of their own fears. It's not companies ripping them off. Do Inventors get ripped off sometimes. Yeah, I've seen it happen. And most of the time when I talk to them, they're acting a little wacky. I'm not saying that's like the fault of the inventor. It's not. It's unethical for a company to take somebody's idea and run with it. But it, it's I just don't see it happening to people that conduct themselves professionally. So going back to my other point. So yeah, I, I can't, you know, I'm not telling you not to send an ADA, NDA, Melissa, but it's just not practical real world business advice File your provisional patent. In your case, if you filed a patent, okay. Um, and start reaching out to companies. That's what we teach our students. Uh, okay. Spence says, hi. Hello, Andrew. Hope you're well. Um, UK-based and have UK-based, man. Was it like 12-11 for you right now? Thank you. That's very flattering. You stayed up till past midnight to hear me ramble. Um, I'm UK based and have an idea detailed on paper. I'd like to license it, but a patent lawyer said I can't license an idea. Said I can't license an idea. I thought I could, so I'm. am I missing something? I, Spence, if you could type in what they're saying you can't do, are they saying it's not patentable? Why would a patent attorney tell you you can't license? Oh, so what you're saying, you can't license an idea, right? Um, so first off, don't listen to patent attorneys that have never licensed anything, which is probably 99.9% .9 of them. They don't understand. Our students license stuff all the time with just a provisional patent. And quite often, often, the company's like, we don't care about patent. We'll license it. We'll do a license. You can do a licensing deal. You can make the licensing deal not dependent on a patent, and they still have to pay you for every unit. So your license, your patent attorney does not know what the f he's talking about if he's saying you can't license. If what he's saying, we don't know what he's saying here because I don't have enough detail. If he's saying, and so again, now we're not talking about what your patent attorney said, but more general here. 
if what if what he's saying is you can't do a licensing deal without a patent that's complete and utter BS. Our students do them all the time. They do it with provisionals. Company wants to upgrade. Okay, get the company to help you pay for the patent or you pay for yourself, whatever. Um, uh, you know, but to say you can't do a licensing deal, which I don't know if that's what the attorney said, without um, having a patent, it's not true. Um, if he's saying that the product's not patentable, therefore you can't do a licensing, that's also not true. Okay. Um, so if you want to clarify later, okay, here we go. He suggested a PPA, so I'm protected. Okay, I like him. I like what he's giving advice so far. And then get, I just realized Spence typed in more. He's suggesting a, a PPA, so I'm protected, and then get a prototype before speaking to companies. You don't have to have a prototype to speak to companies. You have to have a marketing piece. You don't have to have a prototype. Uh, I also disclosed my idea in detail without an NDA. To who? Um, could I get the PPA from this guy and then license with someone else? And is it the same work to file a PPA as it is for a license? I'm really stuck. Thank you for any advice. They're not one of the same. Filing a patent or filing a provisional patent is just filing a patent or a provisional patent. It has nothing to do with licensing it. So reaching out and doing a licensing. I bet there's some new people that don't understand this. You're not selling your patent. You're not selling a prototype. You're selling the benefits of your product. Okay, And you can hold people to paying you royalties with a licensing contract, and it can have nothing to do with patents. Now, quite often, do they want something about patents in there? Yes. Quite often, are they okay with it not being dependent, and they have to pay you royalties regardless? Yes. And we'll try to help our students do that deal every time. That the license, There's something called a licensing contract, and that contract has all the terms on what they can do and what they have to do for you. So they might need to pay you minimum guarantees, a certain minimum amount every three months. They might have to launch by a certain date. You might have certain rights to take it back under certain circumstances. They're not selling enough. They're not selling it all anymore. All these different things. All these things you know, that you insist they have product liability insurance so nobody can sue you. So that if somebody, nobody's never ever had in 21 years have anybody try to sue a student of ours, the inventor, because they don't even know you exist half the time. So, sorry, my ears were popping for some reason. I had to yawn there. So I'm not bored with your question there, Spence. Um, so there, it's a licensing contract. And you can put whatever the hell you want in that licensing contract. Are the things that are practical? Absolutely. And we know what those things are. And we know what they'll agree to, what they won't agree to, what they'll argue about. And then you can get them to agree to things that it's okay for you to give in on, things that you should absolutely never give in on. And that's all under a licensing contract. Okay. And we guide our students to do licensing contracts. So um, you're really stuck on, could I... So yes, you could have the licensing attorney file a provisional patent and move forward and try to license to a bunch of companies. You could also use our smart IP software, spend 99 bucks, not 825 bucks with a patent attorney filing a PPA and file it yourself. Anybody can write a provisional. Writing your own patent is nuts. Writing a provisional can be done in common English. So if you weren't aware, you can use our smart IP software. If you go to InventWrite and you can sign up and get our smart IP software and that's 99 bucks and then you could file the provisional patent uh, with the U.S. Patent Office. And our U.K. students, as well as our international students, file U.S. provisional patents all the time. So it's, it's 
much less likely that you're going to end up licensing to a UK company. Go ahead, reach out to them, but do not limit yourself to the UK. Always reach out to the US and Canada first. You can also reach out to Europe, but in a roundabout way, and I did an interview with patent attorney Jake Ward on this. It's right up on our website. It's one of our more recent videos, and I don't even think we publicized it yet, so I don't think it has that many views yet, about how a U.S. provisional is in some ways a quasi-provisional patent in countries in which they don't even have provisional patents. So watch that video with Jake to understand that. Um, don't just take it for what I just said. There's a lot of details and caveats there, and but if this, but if that. But file a U.S. provisional patent you don't need to spend 800 to 2500 with an attorney. You can use their smart AP software. It's 99 bucks for the software. And then the patent office, U.S. patent office fee of 75. So what you're under 200 bucks there. Um, and you can do a good job. And you heard, uh, who is it? Inari talk about, oh, I, I want to include all the variations, workarounds, and improvements. That is the most important thing when you're filing it. It's not legal speak. It's about making sure which you don't have to do legal speak in a provisional. So if you ever looked at a patent, Spence, and you're like, oh my God, I couldn't do that myself. You don't have to do that. Uh, in a provisional patent, it being in common English. But you want to cover the other versions of your product too in your provisional. That's 80% of filing a good provisional. Most inventors don't do that. They go, this is what it is. This is what it is. And you're going to screw yourself if you do that. But with that said, companies, you know, they're not even going to see the provisional. So you can always file another provisional if you realize there's a lot of interest. Um, uh, let's see. <laughs> Paul says, I can never remember my freaking questions. But then he remembered his question. Paul says, if you submitted your idea to a company without a PPA, is it technically public domain? Um, that's it. And if you watch my video with patent attorney Jake Ward, it's free. It's on our YouTube channel. It's a little bit of a gray area. Um, some people believe that with the American Invents Act, that privately showing it for license is not considered public disclosure. And then other people believe that it is. More people that I've talked to believe that it isn't. I can tell you that it's never once bit our students in the butt as far as being public disclosure. But if it's this idea that's making, you know, $50 million a year or something like that, um, could they pull out all that? People will only dig down deep for that stuff if somebody's making a lot of money, right? Um, so I'm not going to say that it's not considered public disclosure, but I'm going to say that for the most part, um, you're, you're fairly safe there that you privately showing it for license via email to a marketing manager at a company, not putting it up on, definitely putting up on a website, putting it up on a public YouTube video, um, selling it a swap meet. These are all things that start what's called the one-year on-bar rule from ticking. So if you don't get a provisional patent or patent from one year from that public disclosure, you're toast. But our students all the time, privately, they don't show it to anybody. They just privately show it to marketing managers at companies via email. Um, now, the, the problem is, and these are the caveats, if they went out and showed it, even though they you that you even though even if you had an NDA side, or if you didn't, and they went and showed it publicly, they put it up on a website. I've never seen a company do that ever. But if they did, then that starts that one year on bar rule from ticking. And you start that pub, they made public disclosure for you. They messed with you, and they screwed you up there. I've never seen that happen. So when we talk about these scenarios, there are scenarios that are possible, 
And then there were real life scenarios that Steve and myself and all our coaches were like, okay, that could happen, but I've literally never seen that happen in 21 years with students in 65 countries. You know, and that's where our practical real world advice, we're not giving you legal advice, comes in. So, Paul, I can only tell you for me personally, if I was privately showing it to marketing managers and companies, would I be concerned that that's public disclosure for even a second for myself? No. Have I ever seen it? But the reason why I'm not concerned is not because of the legal aspect of it, because more because I've never seen it be a problem ever. Um, could it be? Yes, it could be. It could. Um, uh, let's see. William says, I know that short form, as seen on TV, I think so short form commercials are 30 second commercials or less on the as seen on TV people, um, isn't your favorite. But it is it, in your opinion, still good to mark good market channel to license in? Is it still a viable one? No, I wouldn't say, William, that it's not my favorite. I would say that I personally, I'm a transparent person. I like things to be transparent. Um, I don't like dealing with shady people. I don't like dealing with people that um, do things that aren't ethical. And, 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 and is there some of that in As Seen on TV? Without a doubt. So my opinion, but a lot of times you'll have a product that would be good for As Seen on TV, but it would also be good for standard like kitchen gadget company, let's say. But, you could, oh, I could see this being very illustrative. Like on the right video, people could see how this spatula works amazing or this pan doesn't stick. And, you know, I, sh I should contact the as seen on TV companies. But, wow, I could also just contact companies making standard consumer products, selling in Walmart and Target that aren't doing the TV advertising, the infomercial type thing. So I wouldn't hesitate to reach out to the as seen on TV guys as well as the regular guys. Um, I think it's a viable one. I think it's a perfectly viable one. But the point that the reason why you may feel like I don't like it is it has a get rich quick vibe. I don't like get rich quick. We're always talking to our inventors, our fans, whether it's something like this or our students. This, this is going to take time. Even if you did a deal today, you, let's see you signed the deal today. It's going to take them three to nine months to put it into production. It's going to take, you know, you can, then you guys got to be in the stores for three months before you get your first royalty check. So it's almost always over a year before you start to see royalties because you don't want to top load the deal. Asking for a bunch of money up front, best way to kill a deal. So we're always um, talking about this is a longer play. This isn't like I'm going to make a million dollars overnight. You know, yes, all of the work is on them. It's their money, it's their workforce, it's their existing distribution, but then you need to be patient for them to plug it in. But DRTV companies can launch products faster and you can make money very fast in a short period of time. And more than likely, if you're going to make money in DRTV, you're going to make a lot of money or no money at all, um, usually. And, and it can happen in a very short window of time. So is it realistic to make a lot of money very fast in DRTV? Yes. Do I think of that some people in the DRTV industry are unethical? Yes, it's a fact. Um, do I think that if you're going to work in DRTV and infomercials, you need to accept that? If you're, if you're a paranoid inventor and you're new to this and you're just so worried everything is going to steal with you, do not send to DRTV because it's the one industry where it, it can happen, where they can take it from you. 
And they do, and they have been known to do that, some companies, not mentioning any companies in particular. I mean, there's a lot of case studies I could I could show you. So if you're very timid, but if you're like, Andrew, I'm okay with that risk. I realize that could happen. Now, I've never seen it happen to one of our students. I haven't had, I don't know one of our students that have had a DRTV company take their idea. So that goes back to conducting yourself professionally. If you're doing that, even with the DRTV companies, it makes a difference. You know, if they might have messed with you, they might not. So I'm not negative on DRTV. I just think that you need to understand what you're getting yourself into. It's a higher chance of likelihood that they'll take it and not pay you. It's a higher likelihood. I think it's still a fairly low likelihood. I think you need to be able to assume some risk. I think sometimes the inventors that want to do that industry are a little in the get rich quick thing too. But if that's what you want, that's fine. Um, go for it. But, you know, I, you have to also realize, and this is on a side note, a lot of times if you had a kitchen gadget, I'm just using that as an example. Yeah, it might be very great on a look great on a video and DRTV might love it. But if they're not interested, show it to the standard consumer product companies. Or if you're a little timid about showing your kitchen gadget or whatever other kind of DRTV product, you know, that you think might also be good for standard consumer product companies, just show it to them and don't show it to DRTV if you're worried they're going to take it. Now, sometimes you don't have a choice. If a product isn't going to make sense without somebody having seen the ad, that's a DRTV product. You're never going to change that. If somebody can't look at the packaging or the product in the store and they're just scratching their head, you have to realize a lot of DRTV products, people would never buy them if they hadn't saw the commercial. If they'd see it in the store and go, uh, what is that? You know, but they see it in the store and they're like, oh, I saw that on TV. I know exactly what that is because there was a little 30 second ad showing it right or online or wherever. So some products, you know, no matter what you do without the video, they're not going to get it. And that's not a good store product. Now, some products are both. They might see the packaging and they see the marketing and they're like, people are like, oh, yeah, I get what that is. You know, so anyway, rambled too long on that. But, yeah, it's a viable industry. There's nothing wrong with submitting that industry. You just have to be realized that you're taking a risk that you're not taking with almost any other industry because they're a little get rich quick. They've been known to take people's ideas. They just have. And you just need to be aware of that. Um, so let's see. Hamill says, Hamill Design, I'm assuming your last name's Hamill. Uh, if I have a packaging innovation, would I try to license with the manufacturer of the bottle or package or the company who puts the name out there with the actual product? Without looking at it, I can't say for sure, but quite often it's the manufacturer that makes the bottle that it goes in. And that's not all bad because um, let's say it's a new type of bottle for vitamins, okay? And that you can license to a manufacturer that does packaging of vitamins for other manufacturers, a contract packager, if you will. And so you license to them and they could be actually selling your new packaging innovation to 10, 20 other companies. So it really depends, Hamill, but quite often you're going to be licensing to the manufacturer of the packaging equipment or the contract packager that is going to then license, kind of sub-license in a way to the manufacturer that's going to use it. But could it be to the, a particular company? Yes, it could be as well. God, my headset, uh, I hope my headset doesn't die. My headset's beeping at me. And if that dies with YouTube, you can't change your input. So if 
and I'm just going to listen to it beep for the next 30 minutes, but it will not last for 30 minutes. So we'll probably just go for another 15 minutes and I'll just listen to it beeping. There's no way to change the input. Um, although let me, let me click on edit and see, I see they have an edit button there now. Let me see if I can change the input. Uh, yeah, because my battery on my headset's running down. I don't see where I can change the input live. I'd have to start a whole other live chat. Let's see. I can't believe that YouTube doesn't let you change your input, your microphone input. Mm. I just noticed they had a new edit button that was I'd never seen there before. Yeah, it doesn't look like I can change it. So we'll just talk until my headset dies, and then I'll just wave to you guys because I'll be off. Um, let's see, unless I can change it here. No, no, there's no way to change it. So click on this button here. Nope. No. So I'll just keep talking, and I'll listen to this incessant beeping while I'm talking. Um, I'll be back next Monday, guys. Uh Sam says, my idea is similar for Hamill. Did you get a patent already? Yeah, when you have a packaging product, you know, Stephen, our other co-founder, he's a lot of experience in packaging. It's a very difficult industry. You need to have lockdown understanding of manufacturing, which is not true of most of their products, and a lockdown understanding of the patentability surrounding that manufacturing, definitely. So um, Sam and um, Hamill, packaging is very difficult, but huge massive money if you can close a deal way harder to close a deal if you can close it huge huge deal a lot of money involved um uh, let's see uh ts said can a fabric item be patentable absolutely it can you know it just needs to have some sort of functionality or utility to it um you know absolutely it can be patentable like if it if it works a certain way if it's sewn a certain way, and what's great about sewn products is that um, with sewn products, it's very easy for them to get up and running. There's not a bunch of tooling costs and stuff. Those are fantastic. Doesn't but products don't have to be patentable to be licensable. Companies license stuff all the time that aren't patentable. They're questionable, patentable, questionable whether it's patentable or not. But our students always file a provisional patent. It gives you that perceived protection. Okay, patent pending status, right? Um, so, but yeah, sewn products are fantastic. So Sam asking a common question. If my patent is, if my idea has multiple variations, uh, can I add the variations under one application or each one has to be separate? I'd add, with a provisional, I just throw it all in there. There's no reason not to. They're variations of the same product. When people get weird is when they're like, oh, I want to do a dog toy and a kitchen gadget. And I want, can I throw those in the same patent? No, don't do that. But if they're variations of the same product, absolutely you can. Um, Okay, uh, Waleed. Uh, hi, Andrew. In communicating with multinational companies, which is not which are not of U.S. origin, like Samsung, which is better to contact the business of the business development or the U.S. or Korean headquarters? Always contact the U.S. side of the company. And I don't see Samsung as a foreign company. They're so big in the U.S. It's the same as them being a U.S. company. There's no difference, um, if you ask me because um, they have to comply with all the U.S. laws just the same. So uh, I would contact the U.S. office, definitely. 
definitely, definitely. If they don't have one, then reach out to the foreign office. But language can be a barrier there, of course. Um, D DST Fit Mom is your handle. Should a term sheet be signed by both parties, or is it just the checklist for an, the inventor only? A term sheet is what's the term sheet is pre-contract where it goes back and forth as general deal points. Um, and there's nothing to sign. So it's just going back and forth to seeing if you agree upon it. Then it later gets turned into a contract with what many more details to it. So uh, it doesn't get signed. Um, so it's not for the inventor only. It's a, it's a email usually that goes back and forth. It could be a word document attached to email with the general terms. Um, so that's what that is. Uh, yeah. Uh, Githin says, hey, Andrew, does my sell sheet have to have an image of the production-ready product, or can it be a representation that says the benefit of the product? Or he says a CAD representation. Yeah, when I think CAD, I think like a line drawing doesn't look refined. It should always be some sort of virtual prototype. So you turn that CAD, make it look pretty. But absolutely, it can be a, a virtual prototype or a CAD. But don't make it look like an engineering drawing. Make it look like the product. And you can have no prototype or production prototype at all. Our students do that all the time. And it is OK. All right. Um, Brand says, if I have a design patent for medical equipment and see there are similar patent designs, how do we get the right expert advice without them taking the idea design? It really, I can't answer that, Brandon. It depends on the product. Um, Brandon has a design patent, which is just the way something looks, not the way something functions, which is sometimes, a lot of times, weak. But if you cleverly use design patents, we did a webinar recently on this, it can offer you quite a bit of protection. So he's saying, how do you get the right expert advice without taking the idea design? Well, the question is, why aren't you filing a utility patent? You should always file a provisional patent, which is a utility patent, even if you're fairly certain you can't get protection on the, um, what, do you, what did you say it was? You say it was a medical product? No, you didn't say. Yeah, you didn't say what type of product it is. Um, so you should always file the provisional. So even if you have a design patent, you should file a, a provisional. It's only 75 bucks and you can legally say patent pending. Keep them, keep them guessing as to what you have. So that's what I would do, Githin. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. That was, uh, that was Brandon. And it was a medical product. And especially with a medical product, like if it's a medical device company, there's a difference between a medical device company and a company that sells like products for seniors, like these senior catalogs that help you grab a can from the, the top shelf or something like that. It's like a medical assistive product, but a medical device company, those guys are brutal. They really want lockdown intellectual property. So if you had a design patent, file a provisional, keep them guessing as to what you have. If they're intrigued by the product, they might ask you more about the patent, but then you know you got a fish on the hook. It's great. So it's all good. Um, William says, I have my own licensing contract that I developed. That's a bad idea. But prospective licensees seem to always have their own. Yes. And of course, they are not uniform and certainly aren't as detailed as my own. Yes, but they usually want you to give theirs. 
They want to give you theirs and you should go with them. And you're right, William, they are a God awful mess. Sometimes you have, um, and I just want to remind you guys, if, if you can't hear anymore, just said no audio because it will mean my headset died. I think I could probably go another 10 minutes with, stop beeping, with my headset being low on battery and you guys won't know any different, but we probably won't be able to go the full hour. And I'll, I'll make sure my headset's charged, guys, so I'm sorry next time. But I was busy working and talked to too many people, I guess. But you're right, William. Quite often, they'll, they'll be like a big, big company and their general counsel will do the contract. And Paul or myself or negotiation coaches, Paul or attorney, look at it and we're like, this isn't a licensing contract. Like, this is a mess. But we don't care. As long as Paul can help you stuff, like for our students, the most important terms in that contract, we will advise the student to what to tell our, our, the inventor, the student, to go back to the company, have them and their attorney change it. The deal flow, William, is so much better that way. They send you their contract, and then we, we bloody it in a friendly way. And, you know, there might be a ton of stuff wrong with it, but Paul will say, we'll go back to them just in these three things. They'll typically say yes to these three things. Then we'll hit them up for these more difficult things. It's very strategic. But even though a lot of those things are missing, William, you need to talk with them about it and fix their contract. It's going to work so much better than just sending you you sending yours. Okay. I know it's detailed. And a lot of stuff in your contract, you'll you'll guide them as to how to put that in there. Um, but you're right. Quite often it's a mess, but it's better deal flow. Um, you pushing your contract on them is not the right thing to do most of the time. And I say most of the time because there's always exceptions. Whenever I do YouTube shows, I mean, sometimes we get new students that have been watching us for a long time. But Andrew, you said this. I'm like, okay, but I didn't say it was black and white. I didn't say 100% of the time. In your case, I would do this. You know, but um, so most of the time, William, I, I advise you not to send yours. Um, I would, I would let them uh, modify theirs. I would go back and forth with them and fix up theirs. And if you have yours and you understand all that, you probably understand licensing terms fairly well. Hopefully, if you just grabbed it from the internet, that's pretty dangerous. I don't really recommend that. Uh, Duncan says, let's say I'm a young designer. I like this question, I think, so far. Who is trying to get an internship, but I'm afraid the designs on my portfolio may be stolen by the company I'm trying to get an internship at. Well, Duncan, that's a valid concern. I don't think stolen, but sometimes employment agreements will say, like, let's say they're in the kitchen gadget business, and you have a bunch of kitchen gadgets. They'll say anything you come up with in this space that we're in which is reasonable. Some companies will say anything you come up with, we own. That's ridiculous. And in California and some other states, they're cracking down on it to employers and saying, you can't do that. You can't own somebody's butt. Any thought they have, you own. But it's very reasonable for them to say, look, any products you come up with in the space in our industry, like if they're doing kitchen gadgets, we own. So Duncan, you should be concerned about that. And so what I would do is if you're looking to get an internship, just ask them what the terms are. Say, I'm an inventor, I have ideas. And, and before you sign up with the internship, that that's they understand that. Um, so, but it is something because I don't know with the internship, but with an employment agreement, sometimes it will say anything come with the space we own, which is not unreasonable if you're working for that company. But if you're doing toys and they're doing aerospace stuff, like I talked to a guy the other day, he worked for an aerospace company, and basically they owned like anything he came up with. I'm like, it's ridiculous. You got some toys here. Come on. And some states crack down, and that's actually not 
enforceable in some states. I believe California is one of them. Don't quote me on that, though. Um, uh, Sam says, scale of one to 10, how do you rate the gardening field for licensing? Um, I like gardening. I think it's a growing field. I think there's not that as much innovation as there should be there, to be quite honest with you. Um, a lot of people are getting older, uh, baby boomers and others getting older, and people garden when they get older. So gardening, and I, I, I guarantee you that gardening has gotten bigger during COVID too. And COVID's not going to be around forever, but but people getting older is going to be around for quite some time. I think it's a great category. I don't see as much innovation there, which is kind of like a sleeping dinosaur, if you ask me. So I think if you approach the right companies, they'll be like, wow, this is very creative. I don't think there's as much competition with creativity there. So I think it's a great category to invent in. Um, it kind of makes you wonder, like, why aren't they innovating more? And there is some innovative stuff in gardening, don't get me wrong. But um, whenever I go to the gardening section of the hardware show, I always look around and I go, it's a lot of decorative stuff with gardening. Um, but then when you get into the actual physical, um, you know, doing of the gardening, there's like the garden weasel, there's different tools you can use to tear up the ground, or there's um, large mats to handle leaves, you know, large amounts of leaves. There's, don't get me wrong, there's innovation there. But I think a lot of it is decorative. So that's why you don't see as much. And, and you can license all that decorative stuff too. So that's licensable as well. Um, do you have as much intellectual property to stand on as far as patentability goes? In most cases, no, because it's decorative. But um, but I, I think it's a good category, Sam. I think it's good. Um, Melissa said, I look forward to Mondays to get information from your live chat. I think I speak for all when I say thank you for being here and have a great week. Thank you, Melissa. Appreciate that. Um, Brandon gave some more uh, explanation. It's a medical device similar out there, but mine is going to have a screw in clip attached to the product that all the current products don't have. Okay. Um, mine is almost the same, but looking to have a screw clip in place of the device. Well, that's if that's adding a lot of functionality and utility, you think that's super beneficial, I would go for it. I can't evaluate it based on that, of course. What were you asking earlier, though? Let's see. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's hard because we don't want anybody disclosing anything in these chats. If I didn't give that disclaimer earlier, don't disclose anything about your invention. Um, okay, uh, Waleed, hi, Andrew. Which is better to communicate with the marketing manager or the business development manager? Either or both. I would say both. Those are both good titles. I like both those titles. If you're on LinkedIn, I would reach out to both of them, see who gets back to you. You know, it's like a shotgun blast. You get out to everybody. Um, now, once you get that person in the company that is helping you, do not stab them in the back and go around their back, go to somebody else. You know, um, if, if they're helping you, be respectful. But until that point that they're helping you, you can reach out to a ton of people in the same company. That's perfectly fine. Um, Sam says, do you recommend to hire a company to get the drawings done or a freelancer? Can I hold a freelancer accountable if he or she stole the idea? I've never, ever seen that. Um, if people are trying to make a few bucks, I'm assuming you're talking about the, the virtual prototype and not a drawing for a patent. I've never seen that. I mean, people are trying to make a few bucks to, in their good, 
good, talented uh, graphic designers, you know, they're not captives of industry. If they love the idea, they wouldn't know what to do with it, Sam. So, so I'm not really concerned about it. But you should always get any vendor that's going to do graphic design for you um, or an engineer to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And it should be a non-disclosure agreement. Don't do this with companies because that'll they'll freak out. Um, only occasionally do with these companies. But it, it should be a non-disclosure agreement with an improvements clause. What an improvements clause says is that you they you own any improvements. So if they come up with an improvement, you still own it. And a company would freak out about that because we're like, well, you're going to own our butt, like anything we come up with in the space. So they're going to be very careful about sending that to a company. But a, a service provider, if they don't want to sign that, don't work with them. Um, don't work with them. Um, uh, do you need to follow? Okay. Dr. Earth says, warning, this question may trigger you. <laughs> If you guys have been watching me, you probably learned there's certain triggers I have. Um, you always say file for a PPA, but do you need a PPA for big companies? What are the odds it will get taken from me? Um, I, yeah, I, I think you should always file a PPA. It's 75 bucks. Um, I don't know what you mean. Like, yeah, if it's a big company or a medium size or a small company, I think you should always file a PPA. Um, I don't know what would be the difference for a big company. Do you... Do you believe that big companies will be less likely to rip you off? Yeah, I, I just always file a PPA. Um, I don't know if you're saying, but do you need do you need a PPA for big companies? All of them. Because what it does, it gives you a year to fish off the pier and see if they're interested. And it gives you the ability to say patent pending on your sell sheet. Not giant letters at the top so you look like a paranoid inventor, but tiny little letters at the bottom. So, yeah, I, I couldn't think of a case where you wouldn't want to file a PPA. Um, big, small, doesn't make a difference. So, see, I didn't freak out. I didn't freak out. Um, uh, as far as this said, please give an example to extend a PPA two years. You can't, but you can continue to get protection. So, when you file a provisional, the only way to ex to preserve that filing date is to file a full non-provisional patent and then reference the provisional to get that date. If the year runs out the provisional, you don't file a full utility patent, you lose that date. Now, what a lot of patent attorneys don't tell you, if you haven't made public disclosure, you could file that provisional again. So let's say, let's say I filed a provisional and it ran out last week. I could file another provisional today. They're not connected. Provisionals are never connected in any way, shape, or form. The only way they're connected is you file multiple, then you file full utility and reference them all. But you can't extend the provisional. So if you file a provisional, let's say mine expired a week ago. I can file that same provisional again today if I hadn't made public disclosure. And if you don't know what public disclosure is, look it up. And get a year from today. Okay? So you can't turn a – you can't – there is no way I know of to take a provisional and make it last longer than a year, but you can file it again and get new protection from a new date. And yes, if somebody came up with it in that period of time, that's an issue. But I've never, and these are one of those things that, oh, it could be an issue. I've never had it happen to one of our students. Could it happen? Yes. Have I ever seen it happen? No. Is it worth spending $10,000 on a patent instead of seventy-five on another provisional to risk that during that period of time somebody else came up with it? To me, the vast majority of time, it's better to file another provisional, but that is not legal advice. So you are taking a risk there, but it's a very 
um, calculated risk. You know, most industries are pretty cool. Now, I'll give you a scenario where I might be a little more uncomfortable with that. Um, if it's a packaging product, packaging companies are brutal. You know, you need to have lockdown intellectual property. They, if you start showing it to them and then you let it lapse and you file another one, that might be an issue. But I haven't seen it be an issue there too. I've seen Stephen do it with his with his stuff. I mean, he's pretty knowledgeable. Stephen, our other co-founder. Um, I'm surprised my headset has last literally 20 minutes with it beeping me. You guys can't hear it, saying that the battery is low and you guys can still hear me. Um, but you, if you guys can't hear me anymore, type no audio and we're just going to call it a day. We're only 10 minutes from winding up anyway. And I'll make sure my battery is better charged next time. Um, uh, Tony says, hey, Andrew, can you tell us about blockchain and patents? No, I can't. Um, you should have blockchain expert come on the show. So he's talking about um, cryptocurrency and I know, Tony, blockchain isn't necessarily just associated with cryptocurrency, but no, I'm not an expert in that. I find it interesting. It's different. I've had some people come up with very creative uses of blockchain technology outside of cryptocurrency. Um, but no, I. What, what is your question? Um, you're asking basically how can you use patents with blockchain technology? I'm not an expert in that. I can't say. Um, I would say if you have something in that space, make sure it makes sense from a marketing perspective, file a provisional patent on it and see if there's any interest first, just like anything else. Um, so that's what I would advise you. Uh, but as far as blockchain technology and using, utilizing it in different areas that haven't been used in, I think there may be some opportunities there. I haven't looked at all the prior art. You know, I would, there's probably circles you can travel in where there are blockchain technology geeks talking about that sort of stuff online. Um, uh, Duncan, would you recommend an NDA or a PPA to protect my invention on my portfolio before revealing to them, uh, to brands in the industry? Yeah. Our, what our students do is they just do the PPA and they create the paper trail. Um, our students do not ask for NDAs every time with every company, Duncan. So, um, and again, that's not legal advice. You have to decide and you have to seek the service of an attorney before you move forward with anything. But um, companies, if you say, look, I'm going to show you this. I can't tell you what it is, but you have to agree to keep it confidential. Freaks companies out. Now, oddly enough, in Europe, they're, they're, they'll sign NDAs readily. In Europe, they'll, they'll do it a lot. It's very common there. But you have your provisional patent. What are you worried about? Uh, well, you're worried about getting ripped off. Um, could it happen? Yeah. If you ask, I can tell you right now, though, from a practical standpoint, this is not legal advice, but if you ask every company to sign your NDA, you're going to feel like you're beating your head up against a brick wall. And attorneys will quite often guide you to do that. But you ask them, have you ever licensed a product before? Do you understand licensing? They're going to be like, no, I don't know. But this is my advice. You know, it's not it's not practical. But Corian, uh, yeah, resubmit. I'm assuming you're talking about, oh, hi, Andrew, filed a PPA, submitting the idea to a bunch of companies, got interest from two companies, great. But now those companies have quit responding to me. My plan is to make a better prototype and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, I don't know what you're doing, Corian, like why they're not responding to you anymore. It's common to get a little interest and they're not responding. But 
you got to take advantage when they show interest and get on the phone and talk to them. I don't know if you just emailed, but if you didn't talk to them on the phone and insist on it in a friendly way, you made a mistake and things fizzled out. So um, I don't, you're saying your plan is to make a better prototype. I don't know if that's going to get you where you need to go. You need to talk to them about what their interest in the product is. The prototype won't help you there. Um, so resubmit, is that a good plan? Yeah, I re, I'd follow up with them again, if that's your question. Uh, absolutely. Um, huh. I like this question. Stiv says, and we're going to wrap up in a few minutes here. <coughs> Hi, Andrew. What is the chance to license uh, to a mega company? That's why I always call them, right? Like Amazon or Google. Um, next to nothing. Um, but here, this isn't discouraging. I could count on two hands the companies that are next to impossible to license to, like a Procter & Gamble, a 3M, um, Google, Apple. Um, now, whenever people go, well, I want to license to Google and Apple, Andrew, and I'm, I look at their product, I'm like, you, I'm looking at your product. You have like 20 other companies you can license to. Why are you obsessed with Google and Apple? Um, Google and Apple are more likely to buy out a smaller company that you've licensed to than you are to license directly to them. Um, they're so big. They're so afraid of all the liability. But nine times out of 10, when I look at people and they say they want to license to those types of companies, um, we can figure out other companies they can license to that are either in a roundabout way being used by those companies or being used in a different way. And without getting into a specific product, I know it's not really making a lot of sense, Scott, but, um, or Stiv, that was um, Stiv. Um, but I'm not excited about it. And if you said, oh, my only potential licensee is Google. My only one is Apple. I would look at it and if I'm like, oh, you're right. I would say, don't bother. That's what I would say. Um, you can you can think really big when you're licensing because you're licensing this big company. It's their money, it's their workforce, and it's their distribution. So to think like you could sell, it depends on the product, 5,000, 50,000, half a million units a year, 2 million a year, it depends on the product, is not craziness. You're not delusional because these big companies can do that sort of thing. But to try to license to um, Amazon or Google, it's just next to impossible. There's, but most like nine times out of 10, not 10 times out of 10, there are other people that you can license to when people say that. And that's what I direct them to do. Um, Hamill says, uh, if an idea truly is not patentable, but still a good idea for a company, that company, well, you, he, Hamill says for that company, you shouldn't be working on a product that's for one company ever. Now, if you say, oh, it's great for this company. I came up with this company and, and I'm like, oh, well, it'd be good for these other 20 companies or other 10 companies or at least five. Then I'd say work on the project, but you should never work on a product that's just for one company because you're going to do this, all this rigmarole. God, I sound like an old fart saying that. I don't even use that term ever, but you do all this work and you're only sent to one company. And they're, well, I'm not interested. Okay, I'm done. What's that's that's not tapping into the power of licensing, but that, anyway, that's on a tangent. So Hamill is saying, should I still reach out to them with no possible PPA? Uh, well, the, first of all, there is there's always a PPA. You can get a PPA 100% of the time. You can even if you know a patent attorney, look, that's not patentable. I tell you, that's not patentable. You can still find a P, file a PPA for 75 bucks and say patent pending legally. 
So it puts people on notice. They might be wondering, like, what's he protecting about this? But you can still do that, and I recommend people still do, you know. So uh, first of all, don't license it to if it's just for one company. Figure out what other companies it can be for as well. And if it's not patentable, can you still license it? Absolutely, you can. Our students do it all the time. Um, so, but there are always exceptions, like with the packaging industry, which is not what 99% of you guys are doing. Um, can you license in the packaging industry with no patentability? Absolutely not. But I can't think of many other industries where that's the case. Most other industries you can. You, somebody talked about gardening earlier. Sure. Um, kitchen products. Sure. Home storage organizations. Sure. Uh, uh, medical devices for old people that help them like do things like reach for something on the top shelf. Sure. Uh, but packaging? No, you're, you're not going to get a packaging product done without patentability. Um, uh, uh, okay. Corvette, man, is it possible to have a paid 15 minute conversation with you or Steven? Well, first of all, you never get anything done in 15 minutes with an inventor, ever. <laughs> so no, no 15-minute combo. I have a similar issue that Stephen had with his spin label. Okay, Stephen sold that whole portfolio, so it has nothing to do with the spin label. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, why don't you book an appointment with me, um, call the main number and book an appointment with me, and if you're sincerely interested in talking about coaching or mentoring, I can take a look at what your issue is. And I can tell you if we coach and mentor you through it, be happy to do that. So just call the main number and say I was Andrew's chat. And, uh, and uh, he said I could reach out to him to see if it's something that InventRight can help with. Um, uh, Amanda, we'll end up on this one, which is a great idea. And just to remind you guys, my mic is about to die. So if it dies in the last two minutes of this talk, you know, thank you guys. Um, if a company expresses interest in your product, how soon should you start discussing a licensing deal? How many presentations or meetings, we don't give presentations, should we expect to have before serious talks begin? So you jump on the phone immediately. You try to schedule a phone call right away. And... On average, we found over the last 21 years is three months. Could be shorter, could be a month and a half, two months, could be four months, but the average is three. And that's the entire time. So from initial interest to signing. I'm not, and of course, there's a tons of variation, guys. I couldn't ever quote the specific. But Amanda, there's a lot of variation there. So it's like a phone call, four or five emails, another phone call, three or four emails. And quite often it's it's not, you know, they need to get some quotes in China, maybe if they're getting it made in China. And that takes them three weeks because that's how long it took them to get back. Or, well, we got to talk to Sally and she's not back from vacation for a week. Or we're having a meeting with um, marketing and engineering and different folks. And that's not happening for two weeks. There's reasons for this delay and they need to think on things. And then there's the debate about the different terms. It's not like you get interest and you're in a negotiate. You're, in my opinion, you're in a negotiation, but you need to talk about the product, their concerns, and address all those things. You don't start talking about the contract right away. No. So the average time period is three months. So it doesn't happen overnight. Definitely not. Um, uh, Joel says, how much is coaching and mentoring? So we have our academy group coaching programs, about 900 bucks, and our one-on-one -on -one coaching program, which would you get a, a sell sheet, a virtual prototype, smart IP to file your 
uh, provisional patents, so you don't have to spend a bunch of money with an attorney. And you get a coach every single week for half a year. And then you get access to our negotiation coach, so you don't need to call a licensing attorney, and our, Paul's going to guide you through the deal. And so that's that's about three grand. You can pay it over six months, um, or you can make it in one payment. So that's the one-on-one coaching is about three grand. And then the academy, the group coaching is about 900 bucks. Um, so hopefully, and so you can go on our website and go to the coaching menu, Joel, and find out more about that. Um, uh, one, one last question. I can't help but to help you guys. I am worried that if I show or share my product improvement, I will be cut out of the deal and ways to protect me without a PPA. Well, it usually always file a PPA before you show to a company and then hear them out on what they perceive the problem to be. And before you share the solution, file a second PPA for another 75 bucks. That's the solution. So I don't think it's something you should have to worry about. That There you go. So uh, I managed to go the whole time without my mic dying. So that was cool. Um, I want to remind you guys to take care and keep inventing. And uh, I hope that you guys can make this a really great 2021. Um, for the vast majority of you, inventing, this is part of who you are. So put the time and put the work in, do the boring business stuff that we teach you guys to do because you will never license a product unless you do the stuff that InventRight teaches you. Whether you're watching a YouTube channel or reading our books or become a student of ours, you've got to do the boring business side. You can't just be a good inventor with your ideas. You have to be good at pushing it out to companies because otherwise you're just like the, the artist in their garage just doing these beautiful paintings, but they never make an attempt to sell it. What's the point? And so you guys are product artists. You're creating beautiful, cool stuff that people can experience. But if you don't push it out, it can never get licensed. Nobody will see it in the stores and nobody will use it. But if you push it out, things can happen. And that's what we're all about. So I want to remind you guys, take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.